0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. And welcome this week to an exploration of one of the more out there concepts in science and philosophy. If you've ever wondered what your life might have been like if you hadn't taken that job, or if you'd married this person instead of that one, or simply if you'd had pizza for dinner rather than pasta, then you have entertained the concept of the multiverse a reality, or really an infinite series of realities, where any and all of your choices come to fruition, no matter how trivial. It sounds like science fiction. It's often explored through science fiction. But for a lot of thinkers, the reality of the multiverse is an inescapable conclusion from premises that we already believe to be perfectly solid. This story from Dan Falk.
2: If you've been to your local Cineplex recently, you'll have noticed that something called the multiverse is having its Hollywood moment. Movies like Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and Everything Everywhere All at Once play with the provocative idea that the universe we see around us is just one of many. While Hollywood can't seem to get enough of the multiverse, The idea has proven to be deeply controversial among physicists. And for good reason. After all, what does it mean to talk about universes apart from the one we can actually see and measure? And yet, at the same time, some scientists say that the multiverse is obviously real, and an inevitable result of our best theories for describing reality. Now, the multiverse isn't rooted in the everyday physics that you might have learned in high school. Rather, it stems from cutting-edge particle physics and cosmology and quantum mechanics, ideas that in many cases haven't yet been tested experimentally, ideas that very much brush up against philosophy. And that's part of the reason that the whole debate has become so divisive. Normally, scientists go about their research without having to worry about What science is, or where the boundaries of science lie. But with the multiverse, it's different. After all, physicists are used to describing things they can poke at in their labs, or at least see through their telescopes. But here we're talking about parallel universes that can't be detected at all. Not surprisingly, some scientists say that it's all rather fishy. The debate has become so divisive that scholars on both sides The pro-multiverse side and the anti-multiverse side accuse each other of misunderstanding what science is and how science ought to work. No wonder Sabine Hossenfelder, a theoretical physicist at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, has called the multiverse the most controversial idea in all of physics
3: it's very polarized. You know, you have on the one side, you have people like, it's obviously great science, and this, this is the way forward. And then on the other side, you have people who are like, this is obviously not science. <laughs> so I'm in the camp of people who think it's obviously not science. And I think what's going on is that it's ultimately a philosophical problem. And physicists haven't really realized that it's a philosophical problem. So they just keep leading this argument with their scientific terminology, which just isn't appropriate.
2: In philosophy, the idea of the multiverse has a long track record, going back at least to the ancient Greeks. But it was only in the 20th century that astronomers and physicists began to talk about multiple universes in something like the terms we use today. It seems that at least three different branches of physics all seem to point toward the idea, That our universe is just one of many. For people like science writer Tom Siegfried, that's at least suggestive. Siegfried recently wrote a book called The Number of the Heavens, looking at the history of the multiverse idea.
4: I think there's a really important distinction to make, that whether there's a multiverse or not does not hinge on any one theory being right or wrong. There are different possible ways there could be a multiverse, and we don't know if any of them are correct, or if there is one, we don't know which one is correct. But we have reason to take some of these ideas seriously.
2: So let's talk about those paths that seem to lead to the idea of the multiverse. We'll start with cosmology. Let's turn back the clock and consider what scientists thought about the structure of the universe about a century ago. In the 1920s, astronomers aimed their telescopes at distant galaxies— and found that those galaxies are moving away from each other. The implication was that the universe is expanding. Think about running a videotape of the universe's history backwards. If you did that, the video would appear to show all of the galaxies rushing toward one another. The inescapable conclusion was that, in the remote past, the universe was much smaller, denser, and hotter. This discovery gave rise to the Big Bang model of cosmology. But the original Big Bang model had problems. Today, the universe is extremely clumpy. Stars, planets, and galaxies are packed full of matter, while the space between them is nearly empty. And yet, the very early universe is believed to have been incredibly smooth. So how did today's highly-structured universe come about? In the 1970s and 80s, a handful of physicists put forward a modified version of the Big Bang known as inflation. In the inflation model, the universe is said to have undergone a period of exponential growth when it was just a tiny fraction of a second old. That accelerated expansion took the minuscule irregularities inherent in quantum mechanics — quantum fluctuations, as the experts call them — and blew them up to macroscopic size. And that, in turn, led to the clumpiness that we see today. So far, so good. But if inflation could happen once, Why not a million times, or an infinite number of times? There didn't seem to be any way to constrain inflation so that it yielded just one universe. And so the notion of eternal inflation was born. Think of universes bubbling up continuously, the way bubbles emerge in a pot of boiling water. Pretty soon, there are far more bubbles than you can count. Andreas Albrecht is a physicist at the University of California in Davis.
5: If you take the standard way of setting up inflation at face value, you're pretty much stuck with eternal inflation. And I've, I have enough sort of fundamental problems with the idea of eternal inflation that I've, I've asked myself, so what would it take to stop it? And it would take something very radical to stop it. And so the way I like to tell this piece of the story is that we're stuck with radical either way. You can tell that Albrecht wasn't thrilled with eternal
2: inflation, even though he was one of the first people to work on it. The real problem was this notion of infinity. It's one thing for mathematicians to play around with infinity, but for physicists, it just doesn't seem right. How can there be an infinite number of anything,
5: let alone universes? To me, the crux of a lot of these issues is how you feel about infinity, how you feel about the idea of infinity entering into physics theory. Oh, so I'm very wary of just bringing the notion of infinity into physics theory. In
2: the end, Albrecht says that his physics instincts made him reluctant to embrace the idea of eternal inflation. And yet the idea does have its proponents. Physicist André Lind, for example, has said he'd bet his life that those other universes are just as real as the one we see around us. Meanwhile, another branch of physics also seemed to be pointing the way to a multiverse. This new approach came from a branch of particle physics called string theory—the notion that the universe is made up of tiny vibrating strings, far smaller than anything we can see through our best microscopes or even detect with our most powerful particle accelerators. But rather than describing one universe, string theory seemed to allow for a staggeringly vast array of universes. So we've got cosmic inflation pointing toward a multiverse, and we've got string theory pointing toward a multiverse. If you're thinking, well, that should settle it, no. For physicists like Hossenfelder, those two lines of argument both suffer from the same problem. They describe things that can never be seen. And, she says, they take mathematics a little too seriously.
3: I've tried to figure out like what's the common theme, like where does it all come from? And in my perspective, it's that physicists in certain areas of the foundational physics, they over rely on mathematics. Um, ultimately, this is always where it comes from. Like take, for example, the string theory landscape. Right. So you have those people, they have tried to develop a theory of everything uh, and, you know, some things worked out like the stuff with the gravitons and then um, some other stuff didn't work out. And then they come to the conclusion where actually we can't predict those parameters. They're all there in the theory. And now we just accept that they all exist and we call this a multiverse. And I would say, well, just because you have the mathematics for it doesn't mean it actually exists. What does it mean for something to exist if you can't observe it? Like, to me, this is just meaningless, blah, blah. And this is always what it comes down to. They're like, but it's here in the mathematics, therefore it has to exist. And I think this is just not a conclusion that anything in science supports.
2: Okay, we've talked about eternal inflation and string theory, two of the pathways that allegedly point toward a multiverse. The third pathway comes from quantum mechanics, an idea known as the many-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. First a quantum 101 refresher. And yes, things are going to get just a little heavy, but only for a moment, I promise. In quantum mechanics, a physical system is described by something called a wave function, a mathematical structure associated with the probability of a system being in some particular state. Wave functions evolve over time, and that evolution is governed by the Schrodinger equation. The only catch is that we can't know what state a quantum system is in until we measure it. Before we measure it, it can be in more than one state, what physicists call a superposition of states. Take an electron. According to quantum mechanics, an electron can spin in two different ways. Physicists call the two spins up and down. So which way is a particular electron spinning? Before you look at the electron, the theory says it's spin up and spin down. But when you actually measure the electron's spin, the wave function is said to collapse and the superposition goes away. You're left with just one spin or the other. This view is called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics after the city where its first proponents, Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, worked. For decades, the Copenhagen interpretation reigned. But in the 1950s, an American graduate student named Hugh Everett put forward a bold alternative. What if the wave function doesn't collapse? What if it never collapses? Everett's idea was that when we make a measurement, The universe divides, or branches, creating a brand new universe for each possible outcome of the measurement. For example, when we look at that electron, the universe splits in two, with one universe containing a spin-up electron and one containing a spin-down electron. What you measure for the electron's spin depends on which branch of this multiverse you happen to be in. Andreas Albrecht, who said he was uncomfortable with the infinities that eternal inflation seem to lead to, says he's okay with this quantum version of the multiverse. What's the difference? Well, even though physicists argue about how best to interpret quantum mechanics, they all agree that quantum mechanics works. For Albrecht, that's a solid reason to take its predictions seriously. Another physicist who takes the quantum many worlds seriously is Sean Carroll of Johns Hopkins University. In his book Something Deeply Hidden, Carroll describes the theory's array of unseen universes as indisputably real. Of course, he's heard all of the various objections that people have raised, including the objection that multiverse theories, including the many-worlds version of quantum mechanics, come with too much baggage, that it's extravagant to postulate the existence of a vast array of unseen universes. That objection, according to Carroll, completely misses the mark. Sure, we want our theories to be simple, but what do we mean by that? Carroll says it's the theories themselves, not their predictions, that ought to be simple. For example, it's no knock against astrophysics that it predicts billions of planets orbiting billions of stars. Here's Sean Carroll.
0: There are good reasons to be skeptical of many worlds. The fact that there are too many universes somehow, or that we can't see them, is just not one of them. We judge the simplicity of a theory by its conceptual apparatus, right? The way I like to put it is we don't think of the set of integers as somehow too big or too complex because there's an infinite number of them. There's a set of rules that generate them. You start from zero and you add one or subtract one. Like It's a very simple set of rules that generates you an infinitely big set of numbers, and nobody thinks that that is in any way complex or burdensome. And that's exactly what many worlds is like. If you don't get it, if you don't understand what many worlds is like, you might be under the impression that you are positing the existence of an infinite number of universes for no good reason. But that's not what it is. All you're doing is saying there are wave functions and they obey the Schrodinger equation. The universes are predicted by that very, very simple set of rules. So to worry about The set of universes predicted, rather than the simplicity or complexity of the set of rules doing the predicting, I think is just a mistake.
2: In a similar vein, Carroll isn't swayed by the objection that physicists take math too seriously. After all, that's what physicists do. They come up with theories, and they use math to
0: express those theories to say that it's math, not physics. That literally makes no sense. Like, like, what does that mean? There are laws of physics. That was, That's what physicists do. We invent laws of physics. Mathematics happens to be the language in which it is most convenient to express those laws. But no one looks at F equals ma and goes, oh, that's mathematics, I don't trust it, I'm gonna to stick to physics, right? Like, that's, that's obviously physics. And the Schrodinger equation is also obviously physics. And so, The worlds in many worlds are predicted by the Schrodinger equation. Why would you suddenly start becoming dubious of an equation because it's the Schrodinger equation if you weren't dubious of f equals ma? That just is a, a weird boundary line to draw. It's also worth taking a look
2: back at the history of physics. Often what seems like a purely mathematical idea does in fact turn out to describe something real. As Tom Siegfried points out, that's happened over and over again.
4: Throughout history, there's a lot of cases where the math told you about something that existed before anybody had any idea or perception of it. Antimatter, I mean, Dirac wrote his equations and discovered that there was such a thing as antimatter from the equations. There was no sensory input into that. There was no experimental evidence for that. He figured it out by writing squiggles on paper. Quarks, Marie galman on the back of a napkin figured out that there were quarks by writing squiggles on the back of a napkin at breakfast with some guy who was asking questions. There was no experimental evidence for quarks at that time. And, and so you find all kinds of examples of this where the mathematics informed you of the existence of something that nobody had even dreamed of before that.
2: At this point, I feel like I have to say at least a few words about a certain 14th century English churchman and philosopher. That's right, it's time to bring up William of Ockham and his famous razor. Ockham is best known for arguing that simple explanations are better than more complicated ones. Except, that's not what Ockham actually said. What he did say seems to more closely mesh with what we just heard from Sean Carroll, that when we evaluate a theory, it's the set of principles, not what they describe, that ought to be simple. Here's Tom Siegfried.
4: What Occam was actually saying was, it was kind of, I mean, to just really paraphrase it really crudely, you're better when you can explain more with less. So, if you can explain something with one idea, it's fruitless to bring in more ideas to explain something. If the one one idea explanation works to explain what you're explaining, then you don't want to have more ideas to add to the explanation. And the other point about Occam's razor, Occam's razor is not a law. It's a guideline. It's a rough piece of advice that generally speaking, if you can explain more with less, you prefer the, the, the more parsimonious explanation but it's still it's a guideline it's not something that should be preventing you from searching for the actual correct explanation it's it's knee jerk application of occam's razor is just is is just silly
2: and something else about occam that might surprise you he was actually pro multiverse
4: occam himself was the in, in medieval times, he was the biggest advocate for the multiverse. He was, he was the he argued vigorously against all of Aristotle's objections to having more than one universe. And so it was kind of ironic that people use Occam's razor to argue against the multiverse.
2: We've been focusing on the various arguments that physicists have put forward for the possible existence of a multiverse, but the idea hasn't been lost on philosophers. Far from it. Of all the philosophers who have explored the idea, perhaps the figure who got the most mileage out of it was the 20th-century American philosopher David Lewis. The kind of multiverse that Lewis embraced was almost startlingly simple. Lewis talked about possible worlds, worlds that could have been if events had unfolded ever so slightly differently from how they did unfold. For example, if the flight attendant offers you chicken or pasta, and you choose chicken, Well, you could have chosen pasta, right? The way David Lewis sees it, you really did choose it in some other universe. Philosophers have a name for this view of reality. They call it modal realism. Here's Sean Carroll again.
0: There's yet another version of the multiverse, which is the space of all possible worlds that philosophers like to think about, David Lewis in particular. So there's the actual world that, that we live in, and there's the other possible worlds where you didn't ask someone to marry you, or you didn't accept that job, or you got hit by a car, right? And there's no physics there. There's no physical connection that makes these universes real, but we can imagine them. And that's really what is being invoked in all of these movies. And the reason why the movies are fun is because You get to imagine what your life would have been like in a different universe and then even get to talk to those people and see that, oh, they turned out bad and they're wearing a goatee. You know, it's a very different thing. Uh, I make the joke that Dr. Strange already has a goatee. So his evil doppelganger has a ponytail. (laughs) But it's but there's no attempt or even inspiration as far as I can tell from physics for these questions. It's a more philosophical view.
2: So we've got physicists arguing about what cosmology and particle physics and quantum mechanics say about the multiverse, and we have thinkers like David Lewis saying that multiple universes make perfect sense from a certain perspective in philosophy. Do these arguments have something in common? Philosopher Barry Lamb says they do. What the physicists and the philosophers are both striving to do is to explain what they see around them. In both cases, they're trying to make sense of the universe, not by means of direct observation or experiment, but by coming up with the right kind of explanation. Lamb is at the University of California in Riverside.
6: My reaction is that these are all inferences to the best explanation as opposed to empirically detectable confirmations, right? You're at a level of abstraction, even within the theoretical physics, that there's really not much difference between hypothesizing about multiverses in physics and multiverses in metaphysics in philosophy there really isn't all that much different in terms of you know what counts as a good argument for it and so forth it's it isn't like well the existence of the multiverse can be confirmed with the following experiment that we can run yeah. like nobody thinks that right so we're so many steps removed from anything that's empirically verifiable that what we're talking about is what hypothesis makes everything seem to fit together better than some other hypothesis and at that level you know it might very well be that the theory that solves the most problems and makes the math work out best is some version of a multiverse hypothesis
2: Lamb has thought very carefully about these assorted arguments in favor of the multiverse. He gets them. He understands their appeal. But he's still not convinced that they have a place beyond metaphysics. He's not convinced that they actually describe reality.
6: In philosophy, the multiverse was postulated in that same way. It was like, what makes all kinds of metaphysical issues? Like, what's the nature of the self? What's the nature of time travel? What's the nature of um, free will and determinism and all that stuff? and The way philosophers thought about it is, well, one philosopher, the person who advocated multiverse views, David Lewis thought about it, was, well, if you take on the multiverse hypothesis, it makes sense of all these other things better than if you don't take on the multiverse hypothesis. And the way I, as a philosopher, think about it is, I don't know if that argumentative strategy is ever all that convincing for anybody, even other scientists and other philosophers, in convincing them that this is real. Right, like that's not my conclusion, right? That's not my conclusion with David Lewis and that's usually not my conclusion with physicists, right? You don't really believe it. You just think, well, at the moment, the best hypothesis we have is that it's 20 steps removed from any empirical consequences. And so that's what people have to work with. Do you think it's true? Do you think it represents reality? Is the reality such that there are these multiverses? I don't even know how to think about that. I don't, I, I, I don't think that. I don't even know what it means to think that.
2: For her part, Sabine Hossenfelder takes a more forceful stance. She subscribes to a philosophical view known as instrumentalism. Roughly, the idea that something should only be regarded as real if you can measure it. For Hossenfelder, believing in the multiverse is fine for philosophers, but she says it has no place in physics.
3: I'm an instrumentalist all the way down. Sure. So um, I don't think it's justified to proclaim that mathematics actually is real. That's a philosophical stance. And you, you can have this stance. It's fine with me, but you shouldn't conflate it with uh, science. If you want to believe that those other universes are real, that's fine with me. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not that we can say they don't exist. I'm just saying it's no longer science. You can believe it. You cannot believe it. We can't really say anything about it with, with any kind of observations that we make.
2: It really doesn't look like this debate is going to be settled anytime soon. It's hard to imagine an experiment or observation that would show unambiguously that multiple universes exist, or show that they don't exist. But the way Tom Siegfried sees it, history offers some valuable insights, and might offer a hint as to which way things are going.
4: What history tells us is that every time in the past we've thought we've got it, this is what the whole universe is, the people who have said maybe there's more than one of those have always turned out to be right. That doesn't guarantee that they're going to be right this time, but for the last two millennia or so, the people who have thought there's another one have been the ones that have turned out to be right every every time.
2: And in the meantime, movies like Doctor Strange and the various other fantastical excursions into the multiverse offered by Hollywood seem
5: to have found a willing audience. People love an adventure. People, I mean, some people are frightened of adventures and of the unknown, but these movies and stories, they're reaching for people who are excited by the unknown, by something bigger than what we see. And I think that's always part of human nature and yeah, the multiverse offers a way to feed that curiosity and that spirit of just, what's what's bigger? What's bigger than what I see? And, and maybe it is true that after being locked down for a couple of years, we're extra hungry, hungry for looking beyond what we see. Somewhere in our psyche, it seems, we're
2: more than ready for the multiverse, at least ready to be regaled by tales in which our universe, against all odds according to physics, somehow clashes with or collides with one of those other universes. At the very least, the multiverse is an incredibly provocative idea, one that I think we're going to be hearing about for some time to come. For The Philosopher's Zone, I'm Dan Falk.
1: And Dan Falk is a Canadian science journalist. He's also a podcaster, broadcaster and author. More about Dan and about today's guests on the Philosopher's Zone website. And of course, more Philosopher's Zone episodes to be found via the ABC Listen app. Thanks so much for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now.